Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Micah 6, 8. We'll open with Micah, uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8 this morning. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, you've all, in just these few short words, you've already laid out the course for, our, for this day and every day. Lord, come and teach us what is good, for what comes from you is good. And Lord, what you require of us is very simple. Justice, kindness, humility before you. Heavenly Father, come and teach it. Come and teach it. Teach us what you have commanded. And because we are weak and frail, grant, give us what you command as well. Lord, fill our hearts with your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, no, I'm not going to try any audio files today since that uh, kind of backfired last week. Exactly. Yes, as arresting as it is, it's open with R2-D2. I'm not going to try that two weeks in a row. I'm going to read instead from The Lord of the Rings as we start this morning. This is from, this is from the end of what most people know as The Return of the King. The, uh, the Lord of the Rings should appropriately be read in a single volume. Um, so, but this comes from toward the end of the book. Frodo and Sam are head, they're just about to descend into the Morgul Vale, the wasteland before, the, before Mount Doom. Or the end of their quest to their end of the quest to destroy the evil of their day uh, lies waiting for them. In a dark crevice between two great piers of rock, they sat down. Frodo and Sam, a little way within, and Gollum crouched upon the ground near the opening. There, the hobbits took what they expected would be their last meal before they went down into the nameless land, maybe the last meal they would ever eat together. Some of the food of Gondor they ate, and wafers of the waybread of the elves, and they drank a little. But of their water, they were sparing and took only enough to moisten their dry throats. I wonder when we'll find water again, said Sam, but I suppose even over there they drink. Orcs drink, don't they? Yes, they drink, said Frodo, but do not let us speak of that. Such drink is not for us. Then all the more need to fill our bottles, said Sam, but there isn't any water up here. Not a sound or a trickle have I heard. And anyway, Faramir said we were not to drink any water in Morgul. No water flowing out of Imlid Morgul, were his words, said Frodo. We are not in that valley now. And if we came on, a spring it would be flowing into it, not out of it. I wouldn't trust it to Sam, not till I was dying of thirst. There's a wicked feeling about this place. He sniffed. And a smell, I fancy. Do you notice it? A queer kind of smell. Stuffy. I don't like it. I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air, and water all seem accursed. But so our path is laid. Yes, that's so, said Sam. And we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about, about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered, or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside a story, and not outside of it, call a good end. 
You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get it landed in. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take anyone that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of a tale it is, happy ending or sad ending. But the people in it don't know, and you don't want them to. No, sir, of course not. Baron now, he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown and Thangorodrim, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Erendil. And why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got, you've got some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales ever end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo. But the people in them come and go when their part's ended. Our part will end later or sooner. And then we can have some rest and some sleep, said Sam. He laughed grimly. And I mean just that, Mr. Frodo. I mean plain ordinary rest and sleep and waking up to a morning's work in the garden. I'm afraid that's all I'm hoping for all the time. All the big important plans are not for my sort. Still, I wonder if we shall ever be put into songs or tales. We're in one, of course. But I mean put into words, you know. Told by the fireside, or read out of a great big book with red and black letters, years and years afterwards. And people will say, let's hear about Frodo and the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was very brave, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy, the famousest of hobbits, and that's saying a lot. It's saying a lot too much, said Frodo, and he laughed, a long, clear laugh from his heart. Such a sound had not been heard in those places since Sauron came to Middle-earth. To Sam, suddenly it seemed as if all the stones were listening and the tall rocks leaning over them. But Frodo did not heed them. He laughed again. Why, Sam, he said, to hear you somehow makes me as merry as if the story was already written. But you've left out one of the chief characters. Sam, why is the stout-hearted? I want to hear more about Sam, Dad. Why didn't they put more in more of his talk, Dad? That's what I like. It makes me laugh. And Frodo wouldn't have gotten far without Sam, would he, Dad? Now, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, you shouldn't make fun. I was serious. So was I, said Frodo. And so I am. We're going on a bit too fast. You and I, Sam, are still stuck in the worst places of the story. And it's all too likely that some will say at this point, shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read anymore. Maybe, said Sam. But I wouldn't be one to say that. Things done and over, made into part of the great tales, are different. Those of you who read Lord of the Rings know that Gandalf and Sam get all the good lines in the book. This is one of my favorites. Um, because he's wrestling, he, because here his rambling mind is wrestling with duty and responsibility and, the, and walking the path that's laid before us, particularly when it's not easy and when it comes, you know, when it comes at a cost that we, do not, we did not anticipate and we do not expect. He's talking here, he's touching here on our subject for today, chapter 16, the Westminster Confession of Good Works. If you remember, in our, as we've been working through God's plan of salvation, we have seen the Lord's works time and again. They are, they are deep, they are complex, and yet uh, on his side they are deep and complex and well-laid plans, and yet on ours they're very, very simple. Trust and obey. We've talked about the trust part, and now, we're talk, and now, we're, now we've been moving the last couple of weeks into the obey part. God has acted, man is now responding having been restored from death unto life, and having his heart regenerated by the work of the Spirit. Faith 
is the basis of salvation, as we talked about last week, resting and trusting in Christ alone, but faith is always accompanied by its fruits. We've talked about repentance already, which is one of the great fruits, and good works, which we're going to talk about today, are the other. So if you have your copy of the Confession in front of you, let's look at chapter 16, section 1, which says very briefly, Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men, but of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. What we're taught here right from the get-go is, uh, is to answer the most basic question of all. What are good works? And the answer, as we should not be surprised to learn by this point, is that good works are what God say they are. Not what we come up with, not what we think is clever, not what, not what consensus, popular consensus would have it to be, not what the popular moral theory of the day says it should be. It is what God, it is what God has said, and which ultimately comes from who God is. Anything that is good comes from his very nature. In Leviticus chapter 10, there's an, inter- there's an interesting episode with the sons of Aaron who were serving their father, the high priest, as uh, underpriests in the tabernacle. Their names are Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, and they took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It's a chilling passage because God's judgment here is so swift. It's so swift. And everything, and it's easy for us to wrestle with what, what did they do that was so horrible that deserved his judgment so quickly? And we're not let, and if we could get hung up on the word strange fire and wonder what this was. Did they light it from the wrong source? Were they going through the wrong motions? But there's nothing here, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing we need to wrestle with outside the fact that God had not commanded this. This was in, they were laboring in worship before him. They were using the instruments that he commanded to be built, and they were doing it in a way that he said that he had not commanded. It wasn't even, uh, it wasn't even a direct violation of his command. It was simply adding to what he had already said. One of the most, one of the most helpful, um, one of the most helpful worship services I was ever in was when a pastor took the bulletin that we'd received every week. You know, it's a matter of course. Nobody ever, you get the bulletin, it's just what happens on Sunday mornings. You don't think about each of the element there. And he went through each element and talked about why we did, why this Reformed Presbyterian Church did each of those things on it. If you're curious about it, you can ask your, your pastor or one of the elders about each element on there. We don't do it just because we're Reformed, just because we're Presbyterian, just because Trinity has always done it that way. The desire has been that each element come, we have an example or a command for each element that is on there because worship is important. And because worship, God must be worshiped the way that he commanded. But of course, that's not just true in worship now, is it? That's true in all things. What is good is what comes from him. Now, we don't like that today. We want to look, we want to try to, well, we ultimately want to try to look at each other's heart and judge what's in each other's hearts. We want to see sincerity. We want to see earnestness. We want to see people trying. That's, what the, or that's where good work should come from, just how serious we are about trying to do the right thing, no matter how off-base or counterproductive it is. We want, to judge, we want to judge our works not by their source or their fruits, but by intent, by intention. 
And so, of course, when something goes wrong, then we go, then we go, then we try to, we try to do what God does and delve out what's in each other's hearts, which we cannot do. We have to turn instead to what we are, uh, what the Lord has given us. For it says in Genesis 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, this, was just before, this was just before the Lord proclaimed judgment on the whole earth and brought the, flood, the waters of the great flood. Because he saw, it doesn't matter how earnest or sincere we are, apart from him, and apart particularly from his faith that he gives, we have no good works to offer. We've talked about this distinct Thomas Boston's fourfold state and those distinctions. And so remember, we are, we are now, we are now post-fall. We are now out of the garden. We have lost the innocence that Adam and Eve possessed at the beginning. And so our only, our only condition right now, baked into our very natures, is a proclivity and inclination to sin and nothing else. And even if we think we're trying to do something outwardly good, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. We're doing it for ourselves most of all. We are not able not to sin. Hebrews 11 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We're going to touch on this again, um, but you know the thing that we're going to touch on this again in a later section. But the thing that we should remember here, right at the out, outset, is there is no division between faith and good works. The two can't, the can't two do and must go together. For just as faith without works is dead, as James tells us, good works without faith are impossible. For they have to, for they must. They must uh, spring from heart of faith. If law is the most important prerequisite to good works, if God's revelation about himself and what goodness is is where we must begin, faith is second. Because even, adhe- even outward adherence to God's revealed will is not obedience without faith in the heart of the one doing it. So faith is critical, not, not sincerity. And this is something we want to be... And this is something we want to be... Um, careful with as we consider spiritual maturity. We're going to talk here in a few minutes about supererogation, about, going, about the, the wrong-headed belief that we can go above and beyond what God has commanded. And the way man always tries to do that is he takes God's law and then he says, I'm going to add something else. And what he's really doing is he's taking away from God's perfection and trying to set a standard that he can live up to. And so very often we will take spiritual weakness or timidity and make it, make it and define, redefine it as virtue that we can achieve and even exceed what God has commanded. So in section two, the confession writes, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, and listen closely to this list, this is very, very instructive. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness Strengthen their insurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit under holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. Now, we could, we could, spend, you know, we could spend months upon months of lessons on any one of these things, that good works, that God is pleased to accomplish through our good works through the works that he gives us to do. 
But first note, they are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Again, this tight connection between the work that we do and the God that we rest and trust in. We know, how, we sh- we know or we should know by now, just how much he has done for us. We, have to, we should know the great price that God paid to redeem us from our sins. A price that he did not have to pay, a redemption he did not have to accomplish, a work that he did not have to do, but he did freely and lovingly and for reasons that we cannot, we do not fully understand. Maybe we will, I suspect we'll spend eternity trying to wrap our heads around God's goodness, just how deep it goes and how vast, how vast it is. And so in response to that, should we not want to do what, what pleases him, just out of mere thankfulness of heart, just plain ordinary, just plain ordinary gratitude. You know, that gratitude we try to teach our own children after we've slaved in the kitchen for hours to put food on the table, after we've labored for a 40-plus hour week uh, to make sure they have socks and shoes because they outgrew them already, um, you know, we just want to hear our kids say thank you every now and then. How hard that is for them, how hard that is for us, but how natural it should be to just pour forth our lives at his feet and say, Lord, whatever you want, I want to do it. That's what I want too. I mean, good works could stop, you know, we could just stop there in our conversation. Let's go work on that this week. Let's go work on actually being thankful to our God and living as we can please him. But that's not the only benefit of this. Strengthens our assurance. We keep touching on assurance. The, uh, the, the, the writers of the confession keep teasing us with this concept, which, we're gonna, which I promise we'll get to. Um, because I think, uh, I think it's an important, it's a little talked about, but deeply needed doctrine in many Reformed churches. Many of our churches are filled with, you know, with young people who've grown up in the church. They've, been, they've heard this teaching. Um, they've been there with, beside mom and dad in the pews. And now they have to wonder, wait, how do I know that I am part of this? How do I know, why am I not just going through the, you know, the right theological motions here? How do I know that this redemption that God freely applies to those he chooses, how do I know he's applied that to me? And there's, many, there's important things to say about that, but one of the first things to say is, well, look at your life. What do you want? Who are you with? What are you doing? Is it the Lord? Is it the Lord's work? Is it at very least? Are you very least in the path? Are you at church? Are you with God's people? Are you doing? Are you considering your? Are you examining your life? Is it? Are you trying to live with the gratitude that we just mentioned? This is a begin. This is a beginning of how we know that we are the Lord's when we do as He commands, and we do, and we love it. We begin to love it. Sometimes we, go, sometimes we do the works and we don't even fully understand why we do them. Much like I, That's one of the things I love about, about Sam, because he, he's scratching his head, he's scratching his curly head and wondering, how did we get here? What, what, you know, what am I, just this lowly hopper of Shire, doing here in the middle of the, the worst place on the planet, literally? That's where often, often we are in those low places, and God's work calls us to those times. And when we know his heart is working, it's when, he, it's when we know that we'd, we'd rather be there than anywhere else because that's where he put us. Because it was following him that brought us there. And it's following him that will carry us through. Our good works edify and encourage the brethren around us. Because like we said, the path that's laid before us can be lonely at times. So sometimes it's good to know that others are struggling and thinking and wrestling with the same things and trying to do the same things, that they're trying to keep their hearts pure, that they're trying to, uh, that they're trying to, to care, to choose the right relationships and friendships for their lives. They're trying to raise their children, 
fear and avenues of the Lord, and they're struggling with it many times. So when they see us doing it, and we see them doing it, then we're encouraged. It's why it's one of the reasons that we gather all together for corporate worship. It's one of the reasons it's so good to see all of you here this morning, because Sunday mornings can be tough. You can be tired. It's like, oh, I'll just sleep in. Um, but no, we need to be back here. We need to be looking in each other's eyes and telling each other, love the Lord this week. You'll hear it from the pulpit the most strongly this morning, but it should be echoed from all of our lips one to another. Love the Lord, do his work today, because it's tiring sometimes. And the Lord knows it, and that's why he didn't call us to individual walks with him. That's why, that's why Frodo had Sam in the work he had, he had to do. That's why we have each other in this work as well. Adorn the profession of the gospel. <laughs> Imagine this. Imagine the lunacy. If God called us unto salvation to him, if he justified us and wiped away our sins in, through Christ's sacrifice and nothing changed. Imagine if we were the same horrible, wicked, nasty, unfriendly, gripey people that we were before he saved us. What would that say about his salvation? What does it say about our salvation when we still act that way? We're going to touch on that here in a minute as well. I mean, our works are not perfect. We're still whiny and cranky, but not all the time anymore. We, are now, we do now have a chance to do things differently. So again, we should love to do the Lord's works so that we show, so we manifest his glory and his power. And we adorn the, the name, and we're going to take his name on our lips like we do at least once a week, hopefully more often, but hopefully we're doing it. Uh, hopefully we're, not, we're doing it with the adornment of good works with it. We're there seeking what he would have us to do and doing it and uh, doing it for the praise of the glory of his name. Because if we are found, because again, this order is very intentional. If we are adorning the, our profession of the gospel with the works uh, that go along with it, then it can silence the mouth of the adversaries. Because they love, because I mean, we've seen this time and again. The enemies love to look for the weak points in God's people. And use it not just to tear them down, but to tear Christ's name down too. Like you profess to know the Lord, and yet you're sleeping around on your wife. You profess to know the Lord, and you've embezzled companies from your charity. You've embezzled funds from your charity. You profess to love the Lord, and you, know, you swear as much as anybody else here at work. You know, what difference does it make? And so we give, we give the enemies of God cause to blaspheme when our lives are inconsistent with the God that's called has called us to his ways. On the flip side, if we're faithful, if we're diligent, then that, will be, then that is part of our testimony. And I hope that indicates to you that as glorious as this list is, it's really just a beginning. You, we could add more to this. I mean, think about it for a minute. This is not everything good works does, it does it. What else are we blessed to do in Christ? We can help draw the lost to him. We're called to evangelize and speak about what we've done. And through that, he's pleased, through his spirit, to draw others to himself as well. That's not, evangelism's not even mentioned here, but that's certainly a, a good, a great work that we get to do. As we are faithful, it mortifies, oh, before I leave that, 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we do good works, we also fight against our sin. So mortification of sin, this is another. Is this not another uh, benefit of good work? 
That's what repentance is. It's seeing our sin, turning away from it unto good works instead on the other side. We even have, as more and more of us begin to walk after the Lord, walk in the paths, as we begin to encourage each other to do it, then, our, then the influence that the Lord can wield through that can reach beyond just ourselves and our immediate connections. It can reach into communities, into cities, into states, unto whole nations in the world. Deuteronomy 4 says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me. Moses is preaching here to the children of Israel and says, And that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? I wish, you know, I wish we could say that was the testimony of our nation today. I mean, we're, today we're exporting abortion and pop culture and sugary beverages. Um, you know, that's the legacy you know, that we're passing to the rest of the, the world. That is, that's all that remains of, the, of whatever was once great in the West today. We should long for a day again when the, when the Lord's churches are filled with people singing and praises his name and that leaven of the gospel moves out through an entire, moves out through civilization once again. It has happened in small ways in the past. We pray for the Lord's revival to send it again. But even that, that's all, we're only scratching the surface of what the Lord may accomplish through the good works he gives us to do. Because we can't know everything God is up to through our actions. Remember his providence, which he talked about very early on in the confession. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes it this way. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So he, God works through everyone. Even the wicked, even the hearts of the, of the greatest tyrant and king are like channels of water in his hands. And he works through all. But he works in a special way through his people. He's ple not because we're special, because he's pleased to use us. We're instruments in his hand. And is that not the most remarkable outworking of our works? That we could be able to glorify God. Before we get too excited about that, section 5 is going to remind us that we are unprofitable servants. Nevertheless, the Lord uses our labors for his lasting glory. We have a chance to be a part of that. We cannot see all ends in this walk that we have, but we are created unto this. We are walking the path laid down for us, and it's in one of the greatest tales ever told. The story of redemption that's being told throughout history. That's where we get to be. Now, section 3, section 3 of, the, of chapter 16 says, Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, beside the graces they have already received, there is required, listen to this, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel preaches to the house of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, 
which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember that your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations." I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So the Lord declares his people clean from their iniquities. We talked about that in justification. And then he works to actually remove sin from their hearts as well. There is a, there's a, Renaissance paint, a very famous Renaissance painting. It's painted by Raphael. It's called The School of Athens. In it, uh, in it, he, he creates a summary of Greek philosophy with all the major Greek philosophers stand, just kind of hanging out on these stairways into this great temple. Um, so you have, you have Dionysius, you have Diogenes, you have a bunch of uh, the other guys with funny names kind of off on the sides. And right in the middle, you have the two great Greek philosophers. Who are the great, two, two great Greek philosophers? Mm, nope, Socrates trained these men, but, he was, but they, his pupils were greater than he. Aristotle and his mentor, Plato. That's right. It's a very instructive painting. Plato, uh, if you're looking at the painting, Plato's on the left, and his hand, his right hand is raised up, upwards. He points upwards. Not to God. He was Greek. Uh, not even to the gods, uh, but to the forms, the heavenly forms, the true reality behind this veneer of reality, as he saw it. On the other, and then on his, on, right beside him stands Aristotle. And he's, he's shoot, his eyes are shooting daggers at his former mentor at Plato, and he's pointing out in front of him. He's pointing out to this world, this stuff. He says, this is it. What we have here, there's no, perf there's no perfect world that we're trying to know through this. This is it. This is what we have to deal with. And as you look at, as you look at the history of Western thought, these two, the influences of these two philosophers cannot be overstated. But I think today, but I think if we had to pick a winner, it would have to be Aristotle. We're preoccupied with this world with what's here right in front of us. Because even we, even us here, God's people gathered in his house, we think of ourselves, we think of this world as all there is. Now we come here on Sunday mornings and we give the right answers. We know God made it all. We know he set the worlds in motion, but we view this world as just a system or a collection of systems that are running and we're just cogs in that wheel. So, when th so most days we approach life like it's on us. Maybe our wives, maybe our husbands, you know, maybe some immediate friends that are there to help us. By and large, this is kind of on us. We pray sometimes, but we don't really expect the Lord to act. We're kind of surprised when he does. And so as a counteraction, we are all closet Aristotelians. We all live like the world is all there is. 
And so the confession comes and it strikes us and says, the Spirit has worked in you and everything that's come up to this chapter, yes. But it's not a one and done thing. It's not like God comes in and changes our heart and gives us faith to rest in Him. It's like, okay, now carry on. Nope. No, the Spirit is now in our hearts with us and our works that we do, uh, the, works, the good works that we do, come from Him. Now, of course, that means all the glory goes to Him. We'll talk about that in a minute. But think about, think about the intimacy of that. Think about the, the rest and the joy we can have, knowing that we face this. God's not just up there. God's not just out there. God's in here. God is in here with each of us. How little we trust Him. He has, you know, he literally, you know, he literally put his life on the line for us and has now given himself to dwell in us, and we think so little of that. We think so little of that. But that, of course, is why we're able to actually do anything good, because of the faith he's given us and the desire for good works that he's poured into us. Section 4 says, They who in their obedience, attain to the greatest heights which it is possible in this life, are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires, as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. This is one of my favorite words of theology. I love the word supererogate. It's a blasphemous heretical concept, but it's a great word to work into a, work into a sentence if you want to sound erudite and educated. What does it mean to supererogate? It is a Catholic doctrine, and it means to go beyond one's duty. Uh, it's the simplest point. It means to say. It means to say that we have what we have to do, but we go a little bit beyond and do a little bit more. Now, at first glance, this should be absurd, right? If we've said that goodness is defined by not only what God has said, but who God is, then how can we ever exceed that perfection? You know, how, how can we even attain it? let alone exceed it. How could we ever get to that point? 1 Timothy 4 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Because that's how supererogation works. The Roman Catholic Church comes to every man and woman that says, all right, so God, we clearly have examples of scripture of marriage. We can't deny that it is a good thing uh, you know, for a lot of people to do. So by all means, if you want to get married, get married. But if you really want to impress God, don't get married. Take a vow of chastity and live by yourself the rest of your life. Don't, you know, uh, we, don't, don't worry about whether you're called to it or not, whether it's appropriate or not, whether this is how you could serve the Lord. If you do that, you're taking what God has re required from most people, and you're going a little bit more. And, of course, we can talk into you know, the lives of the saints and the treasury of merit and all that, but, I mean, let's just stop right there. There's some sort of secret trick to go beyond what God has commanded. No, he's laid the paths for us, and we cannot exceed, we cannot exceed. This section four is veering in on a very specific error that the, that the writers were dealing with in their day, but it's part of a much larger, it's part of a much larger issue, and that's what section five is talking about. 
We cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all, we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. The writers here are referencing Luke 17, where Christ makes the example of a, slave, you know, of a master and a slave. And you know, what master comes in and expects and, and plans to do everything for his slave? It's quite the reverse. The slave is expected to do everything for the master. And so we, too, when we have done all, if we were to do, beginning today, go out of here and never sin again and just simply do everything perfectly right before God, we would still have to say we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That rankles our modern sensibilities, not just because it used the word slave in it, Once again, but it takes, away, it takes away any boasting in ourselves. We have nothing that we can praise or glorify ourselves in. Instead, we just have to say, instead we just have to conclude that even if salvation and the sanctification it worked were effective immediately, we'd never sin again. We could not pay, that would not be enough to pay off one cent of the debt, uh, the debt we owe to God for our sins that came before. We were created to be perfect. We fell from that duty once. Granted, there's no working that off in God. Even if Adam had never sinned, even if we go back to the state of innocence and said Adam and Eve were perfect and they'd never fallen, they would only have done what God expected them to do when he created them. He created them for his own glory. They failed to do that, but even if they had done it, they would simply have been doing what they'd done. It's not like God would be like, whoa, whoa, you guys went way beyond. No, none of that. He made them for a very simple purpose, and we fell even from that work that we were given. So, so we cannot earn our salvation. Our work can never be good enough. We cannot claim credit for any of our good works. They come from God himself. Even when we do good works, our sin is still at operation within our hearts. We're still fighting it. So, it comes, so even when we do genuinely good things, which is now possible in Christ, they, don't, they come across imperfectly. One of my children you know, speaks, speaks unkindly to a brother or sister. I rebuke that child, I do it in gentleness and love, all the way through until the very end, and then I delve into passive aggression and tell them how I wish they were more like their older brother or sister who behaves better. A good work tainted at the very last minute by my pride. I mean, how many of us could think of that? that? Even when we've done, even we can think back this week and praise God for the good things we've done, and then we look closer. I mean, this is what makes biographies so hard to read of your heroes. Because you read these biographies about people that, you know, you've heard just enough to know the cool things that he or she did. And then you get in like, oh. Oh, yeah, there's also that. I mean, that should be everybody. If we're, if, you know, if we're honest about our heroes, we should realize that they've got warts just like the rest of us. Um, it's going to make the study of history discouraging because you're like, who is there to look to? Well, that's kind of the point of studying history. Is there's only Christ to look to at the end. Nothing we do stands up to scrutiny. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah writes, uh, Isaiah speaks, um, speaks to the Lord and says, You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. 
and shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, not our wicked deeds, but our righteous deeds, are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Hope in God this morning, but never presume upon his salvation. If you are truly enamored of God and meditate upon his goodness and perfection, that question that Isaiah asks, and shall we be saved, should come in your mind, at least, on, you know, at least occasionally. This is not a reason to despair, but it is to chasten our hearts into sobriety. Shall we be saved? As we can contemplate that vast gulf between us, the wretched sinners that we are, and God's perfection on the other side, there, there should be times we wonder, how can that be bridged? How can that be bridged? It's so vast. It's so incomplete. Our works are so pathetic. And that's when we remember Christ and his work, which is what this is all about, which we'll keep coming back to. Section 6 says, Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Here's that word sincerity again, which I've already knocked uh, this morning. We need to be careful here. This is a consequence of our adoption in Christ, but many, people, uh, but many people take a squishy or sentimental view of God here. He's thinking, they think God looks at us and, you know, the lens goes all fuzzy and he's like, there's my sweet little lamb. God, you know, he's, he's just trying so hard, so I'm going to accept that. No. No, the truth is, the truth is a little, is, a, is harder on our pride, but sweeter in its effect. God looks at us and he is... And he's struck by how pathetic we are. But that's not all he sees. He also sees his son, whom he couldn't be more proud of, whom he couldn't be more pleased with. He see, also sees him when he looks at us. And he doesn't just see him in justification, as we already talked about. He also sees him like, ah, my son, I see what you're doing in Chuck Fultz's life, in Timothy Terrell's life, in, in Kyle Schmid's life. I see what you're doing, my son, and I, that, and I am pleased with that. He sees Christ and we and us in Christ. So make sure you're staying in Christ. It's the only place to be. And fine, that would be, if it had been me, I would have been tempted to end this chapter there um, because that's a, we've had the encouragement, we've had sobriety. Uh, but there's one more section in chapter 16 where they, uh, where they answer an objection uh, that may have occurred to some of you as you're listening to this. What about good works, or apparently good works, done by unregenerate men and women? What about fallen sinners um, who do not profess Christ, may even hate Christ, who nonetheless do good things, who pet a dog, who give money to a good cause, who volunteer, who volunteer their time and their energy and their resources for things? Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others. Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner, according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. 
what, I mean, what is going on here? Uh, as some of you all know, I went to college at uh, the University of North Carolina in Asheville, just up, uh, just up in the mountains here. Um, it was, as I like to say, they put the liberal in liberal arts university. It was an interesting experience. And by far, uh, the Lord did some good things there, even with those imperfect means. But uh, one of the greatest burdens of, of their approach to education was a, uh, f- a four-semester uh, mandatory humanities requirement. All students had to take four humanities classes covering... I don't even know what the purpose of these classes was. Um, the, the clearest memory I have of this is one of the professors standing up and preaching communism at uh, what, you know, what passed for a big group lecture. Um, I, so I think that was probably their, their main motive. Um, but we talked about history, we talked about philosophy, we talked about current events. Uh, we had, you know, we had, they seemed to pick the most, uh, some of the, some really miserable professors to teach these things from a variety of disciplines. One of the, you know, one of the low points was somehow we got into discussion about the afterlife, whatever that is, and they divided the two classes. They divided, and so my teacher divided the class into two groups. There were those who believed that there was something after this, and those who didn't. So I mean, I like, I don't want to be on either side of this, um, but I got stuck in with the the other something side. I don't even know who else was in this group. The um, the discussion was not well managed and went all over the place. And but at one point, I do remember somebody on the other side, on the this is the Arist- the consistent Aristotelian side. This is all we got out here, you know. Asking, well, what about what do you guys believe about somebody who's somebody who's good but does who does good things and believes in God? Will they still go to Will they still go to hell? And at this point, I've thought about this so many times afterwards. What I wish I had said is, well, what is good on your, you know, Mr. Ar- you know, Mr. Aristotle on your side, what is good? How do you define that? Um, that would have been the real question. What I said was far lamer. Um, so I won't say that. But that, is the, but that is the real question. Goodness, that brings us back to where we started. Goodness is what God says. And goodness, but that's not the only thing. Goodness must come from faith in the heart. So if we do what is outwardly good, you know what? God be praised. God uses even the rage, the the anger, and the wrath of the wicked for his own glory. We are all instruments of his hand in his providence, as we've already talked about. So those can accomplish good things. But that's not any points for the one doing it. That's That's no praise to him. He is just finding a more sophisticated, more insidious, a more hypocritical form of rebellion against God. Because he's shaking his fist in God's hands and saying, look, God, I can do fine without you. And that's if he does ostensibly good works. What's even worse is if he continues to actually go further and sin and do things God hates while hating God. That's even worse. And you might rightly conclude, well, there's no escape. There is no escape for the wicked man. Well, yes, there is. And it's in Christ, right? I mean, what else could it be? If you're apart from Christ, even your best works, uh, even your best works will condemn you. And that's the best you can hope for. So instead, be found in Christ this morning. That is the conclusion of this, as in all things. Because we are, as we mentioned before, we are, we have the paths laid down before us. Those paths of light, those, and even in our darkest, lowest points, when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, still we will fear no evil. Because his rod and his staff comfort us. His spirit dwells within us, and the steps that we take are laid out for us by him. That is the work that we have to do. That is the work to have to to praise him for. Are there any questions this morning uh, before we wrap up?
any observations or anything share. And let's pray and prepare for the good work of worship that comes here in a few minutes. Lord God, we thank you that we are not only we are not only the sheep of your pasture, but we are your workmanship. Created by you and chosen by you before time began uh, for good works that we may walk in them. Lord, how humbling, how humbling. It would be enough for us to be saved, to have some knowledge of you and your works, to be able to just sit back and watch you work and praise your name. Lord God, that would be enough for us. But that is not, but that is not pleasing to you. For you have saved us so that you may bring us back. Not that we may be taken from this world, but that we may be in it. That we may learn to trust you and that we may learn to walk in what you have given us to do. Lord, we, Lord, we, so we come and we tend the garden and fight the war and do, and do the work that you've called us to because you have called us to it before anything else. Lord, we, are unre- Lord, we feel our un- both our unwillingness and our unreadiness for it today. Lord, this is, uh, Lord, it's uncomfortable. Lord, we're squirming just thinking about what you call us to do and how we're going to do it and how we're going to do it without messing it up because we are sinners still. So, Lord, we can only come and cling to Christ again today and ask you, ask his spirit, which we already have, uh, to continue to give us grace, to continue to work in us, to will and to do as be pleasing to you. Lord, forgive us that we have despised such a precious, uh, both such precious gifts and Lord, give us new trust and faith today for good works. In Jesus' name, amen.